consciousness, mindset, health, relationship, business. Welcome to the Aubrey Marcus Podcast. What's up, everyone? Welcome to this special edition, a solo cast that's going to talk about the end of my plant medicine journey. Um, and it's the end, not like an alcoholic who's never going to have a drink again, uh, but, but the end of the path that I've currently been on, which is um, you know these larger scale trips, going down to Peru to drink ayahuasca, really looking to use the plant medicines as a primary tool uh, to expand my consciousness. And um, I didn't know, I, th- I kind of thought this would be something that I would continue the rest of my life until, um, you know, a recent ceremony where I realized I had gotten what I was looking for from these experiences. And in saying that, um, it's with a little bit of a twinge of, you know, nostalgia and a little bit of sadness that I say that, but also excitement for the next path. Uh, but before we get into the end, which I'm sure is going to come as a bit of surprise because I've been talking about plant medicines for a long time, um, we'll start from the beginning and I'll talk about kind of where I came from and what they've provided me. And then I'll go into this last uh, ceremony here at the end. Um, to help me get going here, I'm going to light up a mapacho, which is a Peruvian tobacco. They call it chacaruna, it's a, which is translates to bridge and uh so when you smoke the tobacco it's helping you bridge the world of regular consciousness to the world of altered consciousness but it's also pretty fun and you smoke it like a cigar so it doesn't mess up your lungs so the beginning the beginning was um in my family there was no like real religious background and hardly any spiritual background. I mean, we didn't have a meditation practice. We didn't have a yoga practice. Uh, there was just general open-mindedness and practicality. And I went to high school in Texas. So I got exposed to a lot of, you know, pretty basic Christian faith through my friends. And I got suckered into this church ski retreat, which didn't go well for the retreat or for me, uh, because they'd have these discussions. And I already knew enough to ask a lot of questions that they didn't like me asking. Uh, for example, you know, asking questions about the Inquisition, because I was, when I was 15, I got to go to Italy and I visited the dungeons of the Inquisition when I was out there and saw to this day, some of the most horrifying examples of the capabilities of human behavior. I mean, I was shocked at what they came up with to torture people who were heretics, people who didn't believe in the Christian faith. And, you know, the effects of that, those atrocities were so enormous that it made a huge impact and and created a lot of animosity towards um, the Catholic and Christian faith uh, that I carried with me for a long time. It took me a while to release that. You know, it was just so obvious when you see that half of the devices involved torturing people's genitals that, you know, you understood that there was just an expression. This was an expression of sadism, not an expression of any God that was worthy of worship. And that was something in I studied philosophy of religion in university. I went to University of Richmond and philosophy was one of my majors. And 
uh, philosophy of religion was one of the most interesting topics. And what they always discussed was, you know, not only should you believe, but is the God you believe in worthy of worship? Well, any God that would condone that kind of savagery on a human being or any kind of living thing is not a God that's worthy of worship. So I knew it was outside of my own criteria, inherently, instinctively outside of that. But it's kind of a long way to say that I had no religious background, no spiritual background. Um, but in my family, there was a few journey people who had experimented with some um, plant medicines and were connected with a shaman who did some work uh, in the mountains. And so after I graduated high school, I went off and visited that shaman. And she was a very sweet lady and she brewed up a tea um, comprised mostly of mushrooms. And I drank the tea and I had had no idea what to expect. I mean, I was literally terrified. I mean, I'd smoked weed with my brothers one time and had some laughs and ate a bunch of food and nothing spiritual though. And I was still mostly in control. I was used to drinking. Again, I had three older stepbrothers. So I was drinking whiskey since I was like 11 or 12, <laughs> which I don't condone, but that's what happens when you have three older brothers. Um, so any, I was used to altered states, but not those kind of things. And I was terrified that I was going to completely lose control, lose my mind. I didn't know. So I picked up a rock from a dry stream bed and I held that rock with me. And I was like, this is going to be my anchor to reality. And uh, I still have that rock to this day. It's been with me for shit 16 years now and I always bring it for any kind of intense experience whether it's whatever that's going on where I want some grounding um but anyways so I had that experience and when it hit its peak effects I felt my body disappear and I was traveling in this world the visionary imagination a world that a lot of people call the astral world seeing visions, learning things about my life, learning things about the universe and doing so with an absolute disillusion of what I thought was self. And from there, I realized that I discovered something that would allow me to expand my knowledge, expand my consciousness, expand my understanding of not only myself, but the world at large. And it started to form the basis of an experiential spirituality, you know, something that I would, I could try out instead of just listening and saying like oh yeah so and so 2000 years ago maybe said this you know <laughs> there's some translations that say maybe he said this so believe this unequivocally you know in my understanding and you know my father was hyper rational and i kind of carried that idea that aristotelian rationality with me you know logic above all I could put my theories to the test in my own experience. And if my own experience held them up true, and yeah, I, I understand that I'm, I have a subjective mind. My mind has fallacies and it's not a perfect knowledge, but at least if I had experienced it and it was helpful to me, it was something that I would keep. Um, and so that started me on the path and I would go see this shaman for several several more occasions uh, up through college and even out of college now as soon as i got out of college that was probably the darkest period in my life emotionally um really challenging work life really challenging you know and really no kind of i lost touch completely with that spiritual connection i didn't have any meditation practice i didn't know about float tanks 
you know, I basically would occasionally get my hands on some mushrooms or something like that and do my own little ceremony and try and reconnect. But I was pretty disconnected. I was drinking pretty heavy. I was partying pretty hard, um, trying out some of the non-psychedelic drugs of the world and seeing how those suited me. They never really suited me that good for the most part. Um, and was just trying to figure out my way, uh, really at that point. Then I, through a series of coincidences, found um, a place that I could, I felt comfortable going to drink ayahuasca. And it ended up linking me up with a shaman, Maestro Orlando Chuandama, my first ayahuasca shaman. And this kind of coincided with about the conception of my ideas for on it. And so it was really good timing because I was uh, transitioning out of a previous life, running a marketing company and partying heavy and transitioning into this new thing, which is really where my heart was and where I was really passionate. And um, so in that first ayahuasca experience, which you know I told on the, the th my third appearance on the JRE, I think it's JRE 127, still to this day, it's one of the ones that I get some of the most comments about. Because when I went on the JRE, after that experience, I was just totally lit up. I even recorded some silly video in the middle of the jungle that still gets a bunch of hits and, and where I was just, my mind was completely blown with what I'd seen. And uh, I wanted to record that because I was worried that I was gonna forget it or something. Um, but yeah, so I, I talked about that experience on the JRE. So for the full details, you know, please give that a listen. It's, um, it's, it's pretty interesting to, to hear it. Not only what happened, but hear it from me in that frame of mind. Because uh, I was still really kind of lit up from that experience. But ayahuasca was the first one to really directly attack my fears. You know, went over my fear of death, my fear of suffering, all of these fears it started to attack. And ayahuasca has continued to be an ally that's helped me do that um, consistently. And it also opened me up to the possibilities of other dimensions of consciousness, dimensions where you could have access to by far the highest capability of your own thoughts, your own imagination, your own planning. I mean, I was able to really literally see a vision of what on it could be if I made some changes and I straightened a few things out and I fixed a few things, you know, and, and kind of guided everything in a certain direction. I was able to see like blood flowing easily into a heart and incredible insights from that first trip to the jungle. Um, so from there I was, I was hooked on exploring these different medicines and my next big one was an iboga journey, which is, uh, <laughs> probably the most uncomfortable experience of my life. And iboga is harrowing. It's 36 hours of just rolling around in pure nausea, like blind. You can't even see your light sensitivity is so strong. You can't even see anything. Your heart's pounding because it's a stimulant. You can't sleep. Obviously you're awake for 36 hours. feels like you're stuck in a high voltage shed. You're impossibly nauseous. Your body hurts. But I experienced something in that, that really ties in and, and how it happened. I was with a traditional aboga shaman at that time. And aboga is a root of, uh, of an African shrub that grows naturally in Gabon. And it's gained a lot of popularity and notoriety for its ability to uh, treat addiction. And some of the best heroin addiction rates in the world are coming out of Ibogaine treatment, Ibogaine being the active alkaloid in aboga. But I didn't do it for heroin. Um, 
I did it just for you know psychedelic exploration to see what I could learn. I'd read reports that you could ask Dr. Iboga, as it was called, and Dr. Iboga would answer direct questions. Ayahuasca presents answers to you generally in riddles and takes you largely where it wants you to go, or at least the way it wants you to go. So I was looking for Iboga to give me you know some more direct answers, and it certainly did that. That was an incredible experience. But the important part of that that I really want to bring up is when I was going into the experience, um, the traditional shaman I was with, um, at that time, he led me through a process. And before the medicine even kicked in, he had me lay down and he had me visualize. And he was saying, all right, you know, Aubrey, see yourself on the moon. And I was looking at him and I was saying, okay, but the medicine hasn't kicked in yet. And he's like, no, 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 just see the moon, see yourself on the moon. I was like, yeah, but the medicine hasn't kicked in yet. He's like, no, 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 just do it. So finally, like I just used pure imagination because my visionary aspect of the medicine hadn't opened up yet. So I just used my pure imagination. I saw myself in the moon. I was like, okay, okay. It's like someone's there to see you. And I'm like, I'm barely seeing the moon. You know, and there's, I can't see anybody there who's there to see me. And he insisted. He insisted. He just sat there with me and he insisted. He said, somebody on the moon who wants to talk to you. And so eventually just using my imagination, using my imagination. All right, I saw my grandma. And then he said, she has something to tell you. And then we ended up having this dialogue way before the medicine even kicked in, purely on imagination. Imagination being the bridge that led me to access, you know, whatever that encounter was, whether it was another aspect of my memory or whether it was my actual grandma, it doesn't matter. The truth that I gained from it was the same. And so after that whole experience, I was still not in the medicine, hadn't had any effects. I didn't feel anything. And he tapped me on the forehead and he said, remember, you don't need medicine to do this. And I smiled big because I realized that I'd done this, you know, I'd spoken to my grandmother without the help of any medicine. And I never thought that was possible before. So that always stuck with me. Um, but I still couldn't do that very well. And, and anyways, after that happened, the medicine kicked in. All of those terrible side effects happened. But I also had the most clarity in my mind I've ever had. And I told that story on the JRE. That story is on my blog as well. You can also read about all these experiences on my blog, AubreyMarcus.com. Check it out um, if you're curious about the actual visions and the insights. I separated myself into three different characters. Uh, Mud body, which was my physical self, mind boy, which was like the ego and the mind, and then my higher consciousness, um, God self, whatever you want to call that, uh, which was you know the one who I wanted operating the the starship, so to speak. So, anyways, that was a powerful experience, and then I continued to do more ayahuasca. I discovered wachuma, which was an amazing heart opening medicine. I did with Gandalf the White Wizard. Put out a documentary about that. All of these medicines offering really different aspects and different teachings for me and have been some of the greatest allies and teachers in my life. I remember I was recently having a conversation with someone who's been um, consistently to therapy for the last, I don't know, 15 years. And he was asking, well, you know, don't you think you would benefit from a therapist? And I was like, yeah, I've had a therapist. It's been the plants. Like the plants have been my therapist. That's what I go and I converse with these imagination constructs or entities or allies, whatever you want to say. 
Uh, I don't get hung up in that kind of lingo. It can be whatever. But these teachers have been my been my therapists, been my instructors, been my teachers, and I've had great human teachers as well. Um, and then I continue to do that, and until up until uh, this past year, I decided to take my practice to another step, which was to do something called a dieta. And a dieta is where you ask any kind of plant to basically in in the shamanic tradition to take up residence within your own body and become a permanent teacher for you. And in order to do that, the plants test your worthiness. Now, this is all the traditional construct of what they believe. And the ayahuasca shamans will diet many, many plants where they invite these spirits in them and then these spirits become allies for them. So they use the traditional trees like lapuna and... Um, you know, all of the different <clears throat> plants that come from the Amazon as their allies. I am not really particularly connected to any of the Amazonian trees. Um, I'm very connected to the plant rose, the flower rose. It's been something that's, um, my family's always had rose gardens and it's been, you know, significantly tied to the kind of maternal line in my family. And uh, so I decided to do something a little bit unconventional and diet rose. And I did so with um, my good friend and also shaman, Hamilton Souther, who runs Blue Morpho Tours, which is an ayahuasca center uh, down in Peru. And he's just a bad motherfucker. I mean, this dude is, uh, he's put himself in the fire um, as many times as any human can stand in the amount of time that he's been, been on this earth. And, you know, has gained the wisdom from that and also has the ability to really relate on a personal level. And so it's been a really key alliance for me to meet him. And I've had great shamans. You know, Don Howard was amazing. Uh, Maestro Orlando was amazing. I've been very blessed with, with great shamans. Um, and he's just a continuation of that, of that line. My very first shaman was great as well. But anyway, so we engaged the diet with a couple ceremonies um where we just invited rose to be my teacher basically for the next three weeks and it's an isolation diet so you eat very clean the first few days you have no, i was basically eating dry lettuce and dry chicken and dry rice like no salt no nothing because you stay very neutral and very clean and you're just in communion with the spirits and then i went in isolation in british columbia uh, where i was writing my book and just meditating every day and one of the really interesting things about that process was I was, my field of vision was opened up to a degree like I've never experienced. Like I would go to rest and close my eyes and meditate and it was full on psychedelic visions. But I was able to maneuver within those. And at the same time, I had been practicing something um, called the sacred silence meditation. And... In doing that, I'd created what's called a medicine space, which is your space in the astral world. And again, when I say the astral world, just think of it as like your imagination or the collective imagination more, more appropriately. So the astral is the collective imagination of everybody that you're accessing through your imagination. So if you want to sub out in your own mind imagination for astral because uh, that's more comfortable, no worries. It's the same thing. 
So in, in the astral world, I created this medicine space and everybody's medicine space is unique to them. And um, when it stops changing, it, at a certain point, as you imagine it, it'll stop changing. And then you know it's there and it's real. It's like you've created an actual space like you're a video game developer and you've created your own world, it's there, it exists in pixels and memories and synapses that have formed actually in your brain. So it actually does exist because when memories are formed, when imagination is formed, it's actually the forming and the collection of different neurons in your brain to create that memory. And when you access it, you know, you recall it and it, it becomes fresh again and able to be changed. But certain things will stick, and those certain things will stick as you create this medicine space. So if you want to create your own medicine space, get into a deep meditation and just start imagining. Imagining the most beautiful place you've ever imagined in your life and the place that you'd want to hang out with. And it doesn't have to follow any rules. I mean, I have pretty much every natural phenomenon within what seems like a half-mile plot in my, in my medicine space because why not? It's imaginary. You know, you can have a waterfall flowing upwards if you want, whatever, do whatever you want. It's your space. You don't have to follow Newtonian physics in your medicine space. But anyway, so I'd created that. And I would go there and I would have these incredibly intense visions. And I talk about some of those visions in my recent podcast with Dr. Dan and learning how to deal with the entities that I would encounter there and you know, at first you want to fight them, but it doesn't work to fight them. So you have to find your ways to maneuver and, and, and deal with these forces that are coming at you. And so I learned those tricks and, you know, encountered both demons and friends in this astral space and learned how to kind of navigate those waters. But it was incredibly, incredibly intensely visual. And this was on no medicine. I mean, I'm just eating clean, writing a book and hanging out. So um, I finished that up and I still hadn't been in contact with anybody physically. Uh, I mean, obviously there was people who I was dealing with when I got my food, but for the most part, I was all by myself and meditating a lot and writing a lot. And then I go to close the, I go to close the, the diet and to close the diet, I go back to see Hamilton and Hamilton lives in Colorado. So you do, um, you know, cannabis is legal in Colorado. So we had a intense cannabis ceremony. And at that point, you know, I was expecting to just kind of coast home on this because I'd done a lot of heavy lifting with this diet. You know, I'd battled astral snakes and learned how to master them. I'd encountered all of these demons and I'd, I'd done, I felt like, man, I really did a lot of hard work. I'd been in communication with Rose. Rose had uh, the rose plant had taught me so many amazing things and I felt really good. I thought I was just coast home, close this out. I had my girl Whitney coming to see me the next day. You can't have sex or masturbate during the diet either. So that's super intense. You're not even supposed to think about it because imagination is the same as actuality. So you're not supposed to imagine eating bad food or imagine having sex. Um, <laughs> that was going pretty well till about day 17 when I full on had a sex dream. But uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty normal for the diet. It's, it's hard to control your dreams. Although I do remember one dream where I like consciously stopped myself. I thought that was, I gave myself some bonus points for that, but, um, it is challenging, especially, uh, like, like Joe Rogan says, you know, you got, you got packages that need to be shipped out of the factory on there, down there in your balls. And when they get backed up, you know, things can get a little challenging, but, uh, so yeah, I went with the, um, 
<clears throat> went ahead with the uh, with the closing of the diet, super optimistic. And the goal for that diet, or in, I mean, the closing ceremony, the intention was to bring consciousness at large inside the physical body and seemed like a reasonable intention to have. But I don't think either of us, neither me nor Maestro Hamilton, really understood the intensity of what that would mean. And also, you know, I think I'd still had a bit of a, your the intensity of your experience equals the dose of the medicine that you take. I still had that kind of paradigm in my head. So I knew we weren't doing much. So I was like, nah, it'll be fine, it'll be easy. Um, but it was far from that. It was by far the most intense, most challenging ceremony experience of my life. Because pretty quickly, and Hamilton is really amazingly good at calling in a lot of energy, and he started singing his Icaros. And uh, actually, you can hear some samples of those Icaros on uh, my last podcast, the special uh, Hamilton Souther podcast that I recently put out, I think number 61. But he started calling those in and, and everything showed up. Um, everything in the imagination or in the astral, it all showed up. And it was all trying to take root within our bodies. And one of the things I realized at that point was that consciousness is not just the good stuff. You know, consciousness as creation is all things. It's all the death, all the destruction, all of the pain, all of the suffering, as well as all of the good, all of the love, all of the positive aspects, all of the creation. Consciousness is neutral. It's all of that. It's a cycle. It's the yin and the yang. It's the interplay of both. Without the death and destruction, there can be no creation in life. You know, without suffering, there's nothing to juxtapose to show pleasure. There, the game of free will wouldn't exist unless there was an equal representation on both sides of the spectrum. So what we were asking for, what I was asking for in my own mind was I was asking for oh, I want the good parts of consciousness to take roots in me. And the universe was like, uh-uh, bitch, you're getting all of it. You want consciousness? You have to take all of it. So at that point, it was terrifying because all of the darkness of humanity, all of the darkness of the world was awakening, awakening inside of me as well as all of the light. And that's way too much for me to hold. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I mean, and I think... You know, I don't consider myself a shaman and I don't, it's not, I'm not trying to, you know, say that I have a great capacity or anything, but it's a lot to hold because to own that all of the darkness of humanity is a part of yourself is really, really heavy. And not only that, to see that there is, there is a beauty in all of that too. There's a beauty in the unraveling as well as a beauty in the creation. If looked at from the perspective of pure consciousness, that it is both a part of necessity you know so necessity is what creates beauty like form follows function you know the function is necessary the function is beautiful and you know it's like when you see something slow motion you know exploding like a bullet going into a hot pressurized glass balloon or something and the shattering it's beautiful at that moment even though it's destructive but it was also really really fucking intense and i really felt like for the you know at that point there was a couple options really only two options one of the options was to be terrified and if i chose the path of fear 
I literally think I would have gone insane. I think I would be curled up in a ball under this table right now, shaking, traumatized, PTSD, in fear, right? The other option to escape the fear, because the fear was there, it was terrifying. All of the darkness, all of the light, everything trying to take root in my body. The other option to the fear was to embrace the fear in a weird power way, was to choose power, right? To just become the darkness. And that was this kind of weird, seductive moment where it was like, oh, I can escape the fear by becoming fear, by owning that elemental force of power, of fear, of power. But that was in itself a revolting choice to me. But really, it was just a choice. It was not like I was inherently one way or the other. I was everything at that point. So it was a choice. I could choose to embrace that fear or I could choose the other side. And the other side was love. And that was by far the most stable aspect. And with that, faith. Faith that everything was going to be okay, that I was going to be okay, that love was going to hold. So it was this this interesting binary decision between fear or faith, faith that I was going to be okay or fear that I was going to go crazy or, um, and then love, which was stable and felt amazing. And I'm talking about any love, like love of a family, love of girlfriend, love of a puppy, love of just fucking hanging out with your homies, watching football, like love of going to USC, UFC fight, whatever, any kind of love didn't matter. Any kind of like thing that, that was real love and passion that was stable. Everything else was like, had a wobble to it, like a weird wobble. So I knew that was the right path out. And, and that's what felt the best, but it was love versus power and fear versus faith. And ultimately what this experience taught me was that really everything we have is just a choice. And it's not that we have to prove that we're inherently good or prove that we're inherently bad, like trying to figure out what we are internally. Like, I really think we're all of it. And we just decide what we choose to express. And that's enough. You know, if you have fucked up thoughts, that's okay. The world has fucked up thoughts. Humanity has fucked up, uh, fucked up thoughts. You know, that is in the quantum field of all of everyone's thoughts. That's part of the astral. That's part of imagination. That's part of consciousness, these fucked up thoughts. Your choice not to act on those, your choice to act on the feelings of love, to exercise your right to have faith that things are going to be okay. That's enough. So really, fundamentally, we are just beings with access to everything that use one tool, and that's choice. And so at the end of all of these experiences, it got really, really simple. You know, like I've been looking for all of these different philosophies and, and really it, it became so, so, so simple that it was, we are everything. I am consciousness, not I have, I am consciousness. I am consciousness. And what I choose is who I will be. And love and faith was by far the most rewarding and best choice. And that's what I use to navigate me out of that situation. And, and I, you know, I think those are the tools to navigate out of any challenging situation. You know, you might not be able to change your physical situation, but you can change your internal situation by utilizing those tools and latching on to those two elements. Or you can indulge fear and embrace power 
and you are going to be down a real slippery slope there. And um, to me, it's a very clear choice and very simple. So in realizing that, not only how intense the experience got, but just how simple everything got at the very brink where I felt like for the first time I was actually anteing up my sanity to, to get this lesson. I'd anteed up everything. You know, there was a clear path where I would have been seriously fucked up. And then there was a clear path where I would have been, you know, really strengthened and supported. And um, I was able to choose that path. Uh, but it also gave me a little bit of warning about this plant medicine path. You know, I mean, obviously, I hadn't been confronted with something this intense for forever. I've been confronted with intense things, my own death, myself being nothing. Um, but not, I guess, the most intense fear for me was that I wasn't inherently all good. I wasn't a good person. And confronted with the idea that I am everything and I am just what I choose that ultimate kind of understanding was by far the most intense and uh, the most illuminating as well. And it really liberated my ability to just utilize choice. And that's the, you know, that's the, the true nature of free will is to exercise the element of choice. We can give up our free will really, really easily. We can just go on momentum and the, you know, harangues of our own mind and these programs and thoughts that are be running through our head, we can choose to indulge those and then we give up our free will or we can get quiet and utilize choice, choice to decide what mood we're in, to decide how we're going to interact with the world. You know, I think obviously there's going to be external factors. I'm talking about something like mood, like, yeah, your hormones may be fucked up one day, your thump something may have happened. But nonetheless, you still have choice. Like that's something that's inherently our birthright. And that was the final lesson for me in these plant medicines. So, you know, with that, I still had an ayahuasca journey scheduled at Blue Morpho. And I knew after that ceremony, closing out the diet, that I was done with the plant medicines. But I had a lot of good friends and a lot of close allies and family going to the plant medicine. So I drank ayahuasca another three times and it was nice. I definitely had a good experience. It was great medicine, really high performance of the art uh, at Blue Morpho and I highly recommend anybody looking to do ayahuasca um, definitely check them out and if it resonates with you great the other place of course is the Spirit Quest Sanctuary with John Howard um, both of those places you're going to have a very good experience um, and but just go you know go with what calls to you and of course if you want to see my first shaman uh, I have links to to his place up there as well but be careful um, because there's a lot of charlatans out there and there's a lot of people with uh, mixed intentions, you know, people who will want to act in a predatory manner, you know, set you up for situations where they're getting more money from you or more energy from you or, you know, getting you a little bit well, but also a little bit sick. So you're stuck and kind of tied to them. Um, and I think that's not only with shamans, that's with psychiatrists and psychologists. You know, you got to find the good ones. You got to find the white wizards, not the gray wizards and not the, not the, of course not the dark wizards please <laughs> stay away from them it's not going to end well if uh if you end up in in their clutches you know but know that you can still exercise choice no matter what like choice is in our is our true inalienable right um at least choice to our own minds our own hearts and and whether we choose love or over power or whether we choose uh faith over fear so with that all getting so simple i knew i'd kind of done i went and did ayahuasca and I, you know 
it's not like, like I said, it's not like I'm an alcoholic that I'm scared of the plants and I don't want to, you know, and I don't, and I don't want to touch them because it's not like that. You know, I, as I said, I drank ayahuasca a few more times and I've had a few other experiences and I'm sure throughout my life, you know, I'll still pay my visits with the plants and, um, we'll hang. But the way that I was approaching it as a, as a primary tool for expanding my consciousness, uh, that's done. And I'd be surprised if, you know, I may do ayahuasca again, especially if I'm bringing some close friends and, um, you know, I want to be a part of the experience and it's offered there. Sure. Why not? Um, but as far as the journey for myself, I consider that closed with that final lesson, with that final gift of choice. And also the understanding that like that Iboga shaman told me, <clears throat> I have the tools now to have as vivid a psychedelic visionary experience and as illustrative and educational an experience without any medicine now that I, it doesn't really make any sense. Like for an example, I was coming on, uh, I was on the plane ride home from Sedona and Sedona is a really great place for me I, to heal and get connected. And um, so I was hiking mountains and hanging out and having fun in Sedona. I was on the plane ride home and I put on some uh, binaural beats that Corey made that we're gonna release soon on the web. Um, and just started to connect with that imagination with the astral world. And I went to my medicine space and I created this little little baby thunderdome in the medicine space. And uh, in there I go and I, I go to see if any different kind of entities want to meet me. And this is again, this is on a plane ride. It's morning, it's you know early. The only psychoactive substance I had was a little bit of coffee. And, uh, and I'm just meditating, eyes closed on a packed airplane, Southwest Airlines. And I go in there in my own imagination, in my own mind, I go into my little cave, which has these kind of white shiny walls and this gigantic pearlescent white dragon shows up and I'm looking at this dragon going, whoa, I didn't expect to see this thing in here. And then I looked down at myself and it wasn't myself as I am now, but it was like my six-year-old self. You know, it was like my childhood self interacting with this dragon. And I started to engage in the dialogue with this white pearlescent dragon as my six-year-old self. And it was, you know, pretty personal, the kind of things that we were talking about and, you know, things having to do with my family and my father. But it was everything that I could have imagined or wanted from a traditional ayahuasca experience was there. I was encountering a giant pearl dragon in this fantastic, you know, creation in my own imagination as my childhood self getting incredible wisdom. Eventually my childhood self merged with my adult self and we were, you know, <laughs> I was talking to the dragon and the, the lessons just continued. And again, they're, they're a little bit personal. Um, but the final final lesson that you said, you know, are you are you ready? And I said, you know, well, I'm not quite ready yet. You know, I, I still have some work to do and things like that. And he said, okay. He's like, and then he kind of got quiet and I was like, all right, I'm gonna leave now. So I go to turn, I go to turn and walk out of this little cave that I'd created in my imagination, in my medicine space. 
And the dragon goes and he bites the whole top half of my body, just from my waist up, just shrunk. I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, this isn't good. And I've been attacked by these entities in my own imagination before. So I was trying those usual tricks, but the dragon was really tenacious, right? He was like not letting go of my body and it wasn't pleasant. The dragon was definitely an ally. So I knew he was teaching me something, but my usual methods of appearing as invincible and connecting, being one with creation and, you know, not trying to fight and it wasn't quite working right. And so at that point, my, I had an instinct to just fully emerge as the ultimate self that I was capable of being my supremely, you know, the supreme culmination of everything that I could be as a being of consciousness and manifest that not, not see myself as me, this limited meat vehicle that has, you know, that farts when he eats too much fucking uncooked broccoli and has all these different issues that I'm, you know, that I deal with and, and that's part of being alive, but identify with that highest part of myself, pure consciousness at its ultimate potential and express that through my imagination. So I did it, boom, and I blew up into this super big blue being. And at that point, that didn't make sense. I was way bigger than the dragon, so it didn't even make sense that the dragon could be biting off half of my body. I mean, he could bite off half of my physical body if I was just showing to him as Aubrey Marcus, six foot three, you know, whatever I'm coming to him as. But as this giant blue being, you know, coming to him in that way as the full expression of my own imagination of what I was capable of. That was a different story. And the dragon just looks at me and smiles and told me, he was like, you're ready. I was like, fuck yeah. You know, and that day, like I was one of, you know, I get in little funks and emotional things. Like I think everybody does stress and different things come up, but fuck that felt good. And that was all just from meditation on an airplane, you know, because like that shaman said, you don't need the plants to do that. But I do credit the plants 100% with showing me the way. Again, I was like an angry, slightly agnostic, but more vehemently angry atheist when I before this plant medicine journey. I was not meditating. I didn't care about any of this shit. The plants built the bridge. You know, they showed me the way. They were the shakaruna, like this tobacco that I was talking about. They were the bridge to the astral world, to consciousness, to imagination. And now that I've been taught that, you know, 14 sessions of ayahuasca, six sessions of wachuma, you know, iboga, cambo, all of these crazy things that I've done. Don't do cambo, that's a bad one. <laughs> but all of these crazy things I've done, countless psilocybin, um, it showed me the way and now I know the way and I don't need the bridge anymore. You know, I, I've formed my own bridge with my own imagination and my own constructs and i can use tools like holotropic breathing or shamanic breathing like i was talking about with anahata i can use binaural beats i can use meditation i can use float tanks and so it's not that i don't respect the plant i love the plants the plants have been my homies like they're amazing amazing teachers amazing allies and surely i'll hang out with them throughout the rest of my life from time to time um but the utilization of them for on the path that i was currently on is changed because I understand what's at the very base and what the, what's at the very base is choice. And I understand that I can get to those states without them. And 
you know, sometimes people get too, they fall too far in love with the bridge itself, you know, because the bridge comes with these fireworks and it comes with these things that are happening in your mind that are beautiful. And, but it also comes with a, with a cost, you know, it's tough on the body to do these plants all the time. I mean, it's, it's stressful. Um, and it comes with risk too. You know, you really, it's a, it's a challenging experience. It's tempering yourself in fire. And if you're too brittle and you choose to embrace fear and you allow that to happen, um, the strike, you know, the hammer strike of the universal Smith schwack, you know, it's either going to make the steel stronger and fold it, or it's going to break it. And you're going to have to go back in the fire and start from scratch, um, back to molten steel and then come back and try and reforge that sword. So, I mean, I have great respect for the, for the plants and, and that path. And I wouldn't be here a hundred percent would not be here without them. Uh, but for me, you know, the next phase is going to be to exercise choice and, um, use all the tools that I mentioned before to try and, um, continue to learn. I'm always going to be learning. I'm master of absolutely nothing. I'm a hundred percent a student, just still learning about the world and consciousness and my potential and what I can be. Uh, but the tools that I choose to teach me are, are, have shifted a bit. And uh, that's just my own personal choice. And I thought it was worth uh, sharing with everybody in this experience. So, you know, wherever you are in that journey, whether the plants call to you, whether the plants have been calling to you, you know, understand that just be fluid. Be fluid with your mind and your heart and your thoughts and what you want to do. Be careful with the path you choose. But if you do choose it, do so without fear. Because if you go to it and you choose faith over fear and you choose love over power, you'll get out all right, no matter what it is. So know that. And no, ma no matter where you've been, no matter what's happened, you know, you have the power of choice. No one can take that from you. So hold that close. Choose what you want and see what you're called to. And, you know, that's pretty much the message that I have at the end of the line here. So, um Thanks for uh, tuning in and um, following me along this path. And, you know, I look forward to continuing to hear from you guys and all the different journeys that you're on. And, um, you know, I got a bunch of books coming out and a bunch of different things that will uh, describe a lot of these journeys, a lot of things that I haven't shared. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. So much love and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I'd like to acknowledge the company that is the expression of so many things I love, onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T.com, and also wearspace.com with two S's, putting out some really dope clothes and supporting my favorite charities. Lastly, please check out my blog, aubreymarcus.com, for the latest in all the ventures happening in my world. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend, leave a review, and let's make this positivity contagious. Thanks for tuning in.